of God's Word. Our passage is Matthew chapter 1, beginning of verse 18. In your pew Bible, that's page 901. You should see a pew Bible somewhere nearby. If you did not bring a Bible of your own, please grab one of these and turn to the passage, page 901. We like for everybody to be able to see the passage as it's being preached so that you know that this is God's Word, this is not my opinion or any of those things. Page 901, uh, Matthew chapter 1, beginning at verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had a mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name of Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Thank you, Katie. Would you pray with me once more as we come to God's word? Let's pray together. Father, many of us this morning uh, come with heavy hearts. For many, many, many of us, the holidays especially are a very, very difficult time. And on top of that, some of us in our family here are facing a holiday for the first time without, without someone that we love, someone in our family, someone that we know dearly. It's also a time where we are reminded of the brokenness that often exists in our families or in our own lives. It can just be a hard time. And for all of those folks that are here this morning, I just pray that they would be refreshed by the love and the hope of Jesus in a fresh way. That as we see the story of Christmas, we see that it is more than anything else a story of hope for those who are in darkness, who are in pain, who are in sadness, who mourn over the brokenness of this world. For those of us who come very excited and loving this season, I pray that, that they too would be refreshed and compelled and, and, and filled with joy over seeing you, Jesus, who would come all the way to rescue us. So come now, send your spirit and speak to us that we would hear from you, and that we would be formed and shaped by your word and by your spirit. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Kids, I have a little question for you. Uh, do you ever, in school or in sports or any activities that you get to be a part of, do you ever have to form a, a line, get in line? Does that ever happen? Yeah, Drew, a couple guys here. So whenever you have to get in a line, the teacher says, hey, get in a line. Coach says, I want a single file line right here. 
What usually happens in that moment? Where does everybody want to get in the line? That makes it kind of hard to make a line. Drew. That's right. Drew knew. Drew knew. Yes, he knows how it goes. Do you find that, kids? Uh, somebody says, hey, I want a line right here, and everybody wants to be in the front. Everybody wants to be first, which kind of makes it hard to form a single-file line, right? It kind of defeats the whole purpose. Um, <clears throat> You know, us adults aren't all that different. That doesn't go away. I mean, sometimes we learn how, okay, you're supposed to let the person in front of you go ahead of you. You know, we kind of learn the decorum of that. But sometimes uh, that desire to be first will come out in me. Sometimes it's in traffic. You ever find this in traffic? Especially if I'm going through Atlanta. I was going through Atlanta last week. And you're sitting there and there's like, you know, 25 lanes that you have to choose from. And they're all full, and you'll be sitting in one lane here, and you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, this is the fastest lane here. And then the lane by you is going ahead, and the guy in front of you is kind of being slow, and I'm, I'm wanting to get over, and finally I get over, and then the lane I get into stops, and the one I just got out of starts to move, and I just, I find my blood pressure rising. Now, why am I so concerned? It might make maybe, at best, a minute's difference and when I arrive at my destination. But there's this deep desire to want to be first. I, I had an opportunity many years ago to get to go to China. Dex can probably uh, affirm this. But I went to China, and one thing that I found out really quick in China is that they don't do lines, right? They don't do lines in China. Like if you need to go up to a desk, if you're in the airport, if you're in a restaurant, you need to go order something, it's a free-for-all. And we would come in and we would kind of think, you know, we're Americans and we know how it's supposed to go and we would line up in line and all of a sudden these Chinese people would be positioning. I mean, like grandmothers would be like getting an elbow and a foot in front of you and like you're like, what is this? Why did it drive us so nuts? That they would not form lines because we wanted to be first. There's something that's very natural deep down inside of us that we want to be first. We want to be ahead. We want to climb the ladder. We want to get that to that better spot or that better place or have that better toy or have that better thing or that better position. Or There's something in us that's always driving us to want something better, to move up. And sociologists call this upward mobility. As they look at culture and as they look at people, they say there's this dynamic in all of us. They call it upward mobility in which everyone wants to advance. They want to get to a better place. They want to get to a better neighborhood. They want a, a better house. They want to be in better schools. Uh, they want the new toy. They want the latest outfit. I mean, it's just like kind of woven into who we are that we want to advance, we want to move up. And there's probably no season of the year, ironically, that brings out more of this upward mobility to get ahead than Christmas, where we're always wanting the perfect party, the better party. We're, you know, in Black Friday, we're literally positioning and elbowing and fighting for the right present and more stuff, and better stuff. And it's this season that ironically tends to just highlight all of these deep desires for upward mobility in us. But as we come to the Christmas story, 
we see something that's very much the opposite of upward mobility, of going up. As we're looking at the incarnation, we're looking literally at God coming down in the most costly, self-giving, self-denying way that we could ever imagine. And sometimes that just kind of passes us by. It's kind of a story that we're used to hearing and used to seeing. But hopefully this morning, I want us to look at it afresh and just ponder the self-giving love of Jesus, the downward mobility of Jesus. And listen, as we see that, especially as it begins to penetrate your heart, your cold heart that's always looking for more and better, as, as we begin to see the incarnation, especially if you begin to see that was for me, I have life because of that, it begins to compel us in a different direction. It begins to free us from having to be first and having to be more and actually begins to change our direction to be one of downward mobility. That's what we'll see in the incarnation. So let's look at the passage together. We're looking at uh, Matthew through our Advent series. We're working through uh, the story of Matthew as he gives us the account of the birth of Jesus. And it's a little bit different from the Luke account. You know, if you're used to seeing the birth story in Luke. Luke wants to give you the perspective of Mary. As you look at the story there, it's primarily from Mary's perspective, her experience. But Matthew gives us kind of the other side. It's through the eyes of Joseph as we begin to see how, what was this like for him? Uh, How did this take place? How did he learn what was going on in this situation? And as he gives us the story, Matthew wants to show us, hey, here are the details of the story. I want to bring you down into the story so that you see these were real people. And this really happened in history. You know, for, for the, the reality of the gospel is that it's not, if it didn't really happen, then all hope is lost. Jesus is not merely our example of how we're to live, and if we live good enough, we're good people, then God will accept us. The gospel is the very opposite of that. It's that he did something. He accomplished something in space and time, and that means everything for our acceptance before God. So the fact that this actually happened means everything, and Matthew wants to bring you into the story and see how real it was for Joseph. So as we enter into the story here, we see right off the bat, again, we're starting at verse 18, and it tells us that Joseph and Mary were engaged to be married But before they had been married, before they had come together as husband and wife, Mary, Joseph discovers, is pregnant. Now, he tells us right here, Matthew tells us that she had conceived through the Holy Spirit. But how's Matthew supposed to know that? He doesn't. And we all know where babies come from. Uh, Joseph and Mary were grown-ups. They know how this thing works, and so... Imagine for a moment that you're Joseph, and you're engaged, and you discover your fiancé is pregnant. What do you you imagine he felt at that moment? Of course, 
The only thing that he can conceive, again, knowing how these things work, is she's been unfaithful. But we're told right off the bat that he decided not to expose her to public disgrace. What would have been natural in this moment is for any man, especially a devout man in Joseph's shoes, to make it very public that she had broken the pledge, that she had been unfaithful, that she had committed adultery. It would have been very public. She would have been exposed to disgrace. She might even have been stoned. And, of course, the man would have done that to uh, absolve himself of any guilt. But we're told that Joseph didn't do that because he was a righteous man. Even as hurt as he must have been, he decided that he would divorce her quietly. In doing that, he would have left himself up to public disgrace and ridicule. Maybe he was divorcing because they had been unfaithful before they were married. And so now he's backing out. But he, he made that choice knowing that all of those implications. Then the angel comes to Joseph. In verse 20, the angel comes to Joseph. He's thinking about, okay, I'm just going to just divorce quietly. Who knows what this is going to mean for my future. And the angel of the Lord comes to Joseph and tells him, verse 20, Second part, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. So the angel comes to Joseph and gives him a piece of extraordinary news. The baby that is growing inside of her has been conceived from the Holy Spirit. This is from heaven. I mean, this is a miracle. This never happened before. There's no precedence for this. And the child that's in her will be the savior of the world. Take her home to be married. Take her home as your wife. And Joseph, as we learn at the end of the story, does so. He obeys. Now, just imagine for Joseph and Mary that period of time where they are engaged and then they're married, and then the baby comes, and everybody's counting days, right? Everybody knows, wait a minute. I mean, they know that nine months is how long it takes from conception to birth. Everyone would have known something's going on here. And it's not like Mary and Joseph can say, hey, hey, don't worry about it. Hey, Holy Spirit, all right? Conceived of the Holy Spirit, you know, nothing out of the ordinary here. You can't do that. It's never happened before. It's absolutely unbelievable. And then Matthew in verse 22 kind of pulls away to give us a little extra understanding of what's happening here as he reminds us of the prophecy, an ancient prophecy in Isaiah uh, that comes from Isaiah 7. Verse 22, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord has said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, call him Emmanuel, it doesn't mean that his name is Emmanuel because we just saw his name was to be Jesus. But it's like a title, a title that describes who he is. You see, Matthew wants us to understand that what's happening here did not just happen out of the blue, but rather that this has always been God's plan. Ever since... Thousands of years before, God had even announced it through the prophet Isaiah 
that there would be a virgin that would conceive from the Holy Spirit and that she would bear a child and that that child would be God with us. The child would be God, but yet also with us as a man. So Matthew wants us to understand this has always been God's plan. And exactly what took place here has always been what God is working all of human history towards. And then at the end of the story, verse 24, Joseph woke up after understanding here all of, all of this from the angel. He woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded, took Mary home as his wife. They were married, but look at verse 25, but he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Now, he wants to make sure that we understand the details of this. If they went home and were married, they still had no union as husband and wife. Now, the church has kind of messed this up a little bit over the centuries. They've taken this account to say in some way that sex between husband and wife is somehow dirty. I mean, some... Some sectors of the church at different periods of time would even go all the way to say that Mary remained a virgin all of her life because in some way that's more holy. And that is a complete misunderstanding of what he's saying here. He's not in any way saying that sex between husband and wife is bad. In fact, God has created that. He has made it good. He's telling us this so that we understand from the details of the story that this was exactly what he has said it was, a virgin was with child. A, a virgin bore a child. She conceived as a virgin. Why is that so important? Why is it so important that his father was God and not Joseph? Joseph was just his father in a secondary sense. He did not come from Joseph. His father was God. He was conceived of the Holy Spirit. Why is that so crucial to understand about Jesus because there's been times and there's been teachers in the church that have said does it really matter if it happened this way and the answer is absolutely because there is no other way for him to rescue his people and why is that what does it show us <clears throat> it shows us the virgin birth shows us that Jesus was both fully God and fully man in one person Fully God and fully man. That's what is at the essence of the birth that we got to see. Fully God. He is God with us, conceived of the Holy Spirit, not from a human father. God has, as we learn in the book of John, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. God became a man. And yet he was born of a woman. He was a human being in every way that we are. Why is that so crucial? Because only in that way can he become our perfect substitute. You see, at the core of the gospel is substitution. You see, he had to be a fully human being so that he could become our perfect substitute in every way. He had to become a baby. He had to be born. He had to live as a man. He had to walk as a man. He had to walk our footsteps. He had to live our life in our place. He had to live a perfect life, a sinless life. He had to live under the law. He had to live a life where he perfectly obeyed God, where he perfectly obeyed his neighbor. He had to live a life of perfect devotion to God. Why? Because we have all failed to do so. We've come nowhere close. 
So the only way for him to save his people from their sins is to become a man in our place and live the life that we have all failed to live at every turn, enduring all of the suffering that we endure, enduring all of the temptation that we endure, enduring all of the pain and the agony that we've walked through in our life that some of us are even walking through right now, Jesus experienced it all. And yet, at the end of his life, he died as a man in our place, becoming our perfect substitute in bearing the judgment of God for us. You see, if he was not a man, he could not be our substitute. He could not rescue us. But yet at the same time, he had to be fully God. If he was not fully God, then his sacrifice, his substitution would not be powerful enough to pay for all of our sin. It wouldn't be powerful enough to count for all of us. Do you see, as Matthew is showing us the essence of who he is, fully God, fully man, in one person, it's at the core of the gospel. There is no other way for us to be saved. It's the only way. Now, here's what's interesting. Just to imagine, no other God would ever bother with Christmas. If you think about it, if you think of all the conceptions of God that we have in our world, all of the ways that we imagine who God is and what He's like, there is no other God that would ever fool with Christmas, that would ever fool with the virgin birth, ever fool with the incarnation. I mean, especially as we look around, and even in our own culture. I mean, yeah, we live in the Bible Belt culture, but really, the God that most people believe in, even in our region here, is kind of a, a modern, all-loving, all-accepting God. You know, we hear a lot of talk about God in all kinds of different places, but we just hear very little talk about Jesus. Why? Because we don't think he's necessary. Many people who believe in God don't see the necessity of Jesus. Why do we even need him? Because God, he's just, he's loving. He's kind. He's accepting. And if he wants to forgive sin, well, he'll just forgive sin. You know, the God of moralism just wants you to be a little bit better. Try your best. Be a good person if you do it well enough. Well, he'll overlook all of that stuff. It's kind of a... Sugar daddy in the sky, like a good old grandpa. You know, you have a grandpa that just, it just eat up with you. I had one of those. It was wonderful. I mean, I could do no wrong. He just loved me. He delighted in me. It was pure love, and it was wonderful. But the real God is far more holy than that. And you see, that's why Jesus is necessary. You see, as we come to see Matthew wants to show us this. There's no other way. The problem is a problem that God has. How can he be holy, utterly holy beyond what we can ever imagine, and yet perfectly loving at the same time? How can those coexist without one being uh, trumping the other one? How can he be fully holy, pure, awesome, in His holiness, and yet at the same time, loving beyond anything that we can imagine, the only way is the incarnation and the cross. You see, the issue is what God has. God has the problem. 
He is holy. He must punish sin to the uttermost. As we look at the incarnation, as we look at the lengths that he would go to, that he had to go to, to save us, it shows us his holiness. That the only way that he could rescue us is if he entered the story, he took our place, and he died in our place. That's holiness. But yet at the same time, what does it show us about his love? A love that's far eclipses anything about a good old granddaddy in the sky. A love that is wild. A love that would stop at nothing. A love that, just imagine this for a moment, a love that would compel him, the creator of all things, the one who cannot be contained in the highest heaven, who created all of the universe and fills everything in every way the scriptures tell us, that he would choose to become a baby that he would choose to become an embryo that is so small you could hardly even hold it in your hand, that he would become an infant in all of its vulnerability. If you ever held a little baby, whenever H was first born, I was terrified of him. This little baby came out, and they're like, do you want to hold him? I'm like, not, not yet, no. Why? Because I was afraid I was going to break him because he was so vulnerable. And he was so small. If you've ever held an infant, it's shocking how vulnerable they are, how needy they are. They literally can do nothing. And yet, what does he say? What does it say about him? That he would become that. The creator of all things would become a helpless baby so that we would know life. That he would do that for you that he would subject himself to becoming a part of his creation. I mean, it's kind of the kind of thing that you got to stand back. It's so familiar to us. We say it on a whim. Yeah, God became flesh. But just think about that reality, that God, who is above and beyond all of his creation, would enter into the creation himself. It's unthinkable. And yet he would do it out of his wild love for people like us. He would subject himself to a life of suffering and loss and mistreatment, that he would endure all the brokenness of this life, and that at the end of his life, he would embrace the shame of a cross. God died for us. That's unbelievable. One of my favorite quotes is by Frederick Beekner. Favorite Christmas quote, I've got to read it every year. Here's what he says is he's just marveling on this reality that God would become one of us. This is what he says. Once you've seen him in a stable, and what's he referring to there? Becoming a baby and being born in a barn among animals and manure and the cold and the vulnerability, everything that surrounds that reality of him being born into a stable. He says this, once you've seen him there, once that dawns on you, that reality, we can never be sure where he will appear or to what lengths he will go or to what ludicrous depths of self-humiliation he will descend in his wild pursuit of man. Isn't that awesome? He captures it. You see 
the ludicrous depths of self-humiliation that the incarnation shows us. It's ludicrous that God would enter into this, into this, and take upon Himself all of our shame. It's ludicrous. It is self-humiliation to the uttermost. And yet, Beekner says, more than anything else, what does it show us about our God? It shows us His wild pursuit of man. He is wild in His pursuit of us. That's what Christmas shows us. And let me tell you something. When you begin to see that, it changes you. When you begin to see that, for you, it changes you. That's, in fact, the only thing that will change you. It's not enough to believe the basic facts about this. Like, I mean, let's go out on the street of Dade County, and every person that we meet will agree to all the basic facts of the story right here. But why does it not change everyone? Because it's not enough to believe that it happened. What changes you is whenever you believe, he did that for me. You've got to believe it for you. You've got to receive it. You've got to let it thrill your heart. That he is in wild pursuit of you. And that he has descended to ludicrous depths to make you his own. And one of the things we say over and over and over here at Grace Community is that understanding that in your heart is not just how you enter the Christian life, it's how you grow. We often think, hey, the gospel, the gospel is this good news about God becoming one of us and dying for us and rescuing us. And once you believe that, you become a Christian. But then, once you're a Christian, how you grow, well, you've got to learn willpower. And you've got to learn different techniques and principles. And you've got to learn how to try hard. And you've got to learn to give it all you've got and be devoted. And, and that's how you grow. It's not true. The way that you grow is the same way that you enter, by the gospel alone, through a continual rediscovery of the depths of the gospel for you, through repentance and faith over and over and over, where every day you are returning to this reality that, wait a minute, I woke up and I got hate on my heart. That's how I wake up. It's natural for me to wake up in the morning and say, today's about me and how's everybody not serving me? And what do I want today? And why did I have to wake up at this time? And why is my kid doing that and that and that? That's, how, that's natural for me. What changes all of that? Seeing this. i got to see it every day. got to go back to that place of saying, I am far worse than I realize. But as I look into the gospel, I see I'm more loved and accepted than I could ever dream. And as that thrills my heart, I begin to love. It changes me on the spot. That's how we grow. We can never leave the gospel. It's how we grow. It's how we advance the Christian life. Now, let me tell you what begins to happen in your life when you deeply believe this. It begins to change the direction of your life. It begins to change you. You begin to give up things like comfort and security and your preferences 
it begins to change the things that you prioritize in your life. You begin to move towards those who are different from you, those who are unlike you, those who have less than you or those who are needy. See, what's natural is for us to move away from that and to move towards people that enhance us. Remember, it's upward mobility. That's what's natural. But as this begins to strike and thrill your heart, it changes that direction. You begin to move towards people who are different from you and begin to make friendships with those people, to entangle your life with people who have need or who you might view as below you. What you actually begin to discover as you're in those lives is, well, you're really a lot like me, but I didn't know it before. It begins to change that direction. Upward mobility gets reversed to downward mobility. See, again, that, that's the picture of the incarnation, of him descending that we might be lifted up. You begin, as it masters your heart, you begin to move that way in your relationships. You begin, it, it changes the way that you use your money, the way that you use your time, the way that you view your life. The more that you're mastered by this self-humiliation of Jesus. Let me give you an illustration that hopefully will bring it to life a little bit. It's the story of Henry Nouwen. If you ever heard of him, he was a um, great Christian writer. He was a priest. He was a university professor, very distinguished. Uh, he was tenured and taught at uh, Notre Dame and at Harvard and at Yale. Uh, really a wonderful man, someone that everyone looked up to. He written all of these books. And uh, as he told his story, he said that... Uh, he was really at this place in his life where he was at Yale and uh, he, had a ga uh, he had really arrived at the top of all that he had sought after throughout his whole life. And he said, my whole life I've kind of had these two voices going on in my head. And one of the voices was, listen, make something of yourself. Make a name for yourself. You know, achieve something great. Attempt something great. You know, do better. Achieve. All of these kind of things. Do something that really matters for everybody. And then there's this other voice that he said was constantly in his head, and it was, you know what? He, even if you don't ever really do anything great, even if you don't ever do anything that's ever seen or recognized by anybody else, here's what is most important in your life. Stay close to Jesus. Stay close to Jesus. And they were always battling back and forth in his head, and most of his life he, he went about achieving achieving for his parents and for the way that other people would see himself. And he said, and then at this point in my life, he was a professor, a tenured professor at Yale, and he began to find himself speaking to thousands of people about humility. And as he describes, while at the same time being, wonder, uh, being preoccupied by what do they think of me. See how that's a little backwards? I'm going to talk to you about humility, but really in my heart, I'm so concerned with what you think of me. He was talking about one thing that really in his heart he didn't really know much at all about. So he prayed. He said to God, if you will show me what my vocation is to be, of how I'm to follow Jesus in my life, if you will make it clear, I will follow you. Not long after that, he ended up meeting a man named Jean Vanier. This guy had founded a community in France that was about, uh, 
it, it was all of these followers of Jesus that came together and lived together, and they cared for the mentally handicapped. They lived with them. Everyone in this community had chosen to come there, and they would be assigned to one mentally handicapped adult with whom they would live and serve and care for. God called Henry Nowen to go and be a part of that community. And his description of it is absolutely amazing. As he left, everything that the world would say, you're at the top, keep achieving, keep going after this, but yet he was empty. And as he came into this community, he was assigned to a young, handicapped man named Adam. He said it was, it was incredibly ironic that he was caring for this man named Adam, which in Hebrew means man, human. And as he cared for him and as he bathed him daily and fed him and washed his hair, he said, at the beginning, I was terrified. All this stuff is coming out in me. But he said, over a period of time, I began to be bonded to this man. We formed a friendship. We, we experienced an intimacy together, a friendship that I never experienced before. And you know what I found? This is what he said. I found that through Adam... The love of God became concrete for me as it had never been. You see, as he was just with someone, loving someone who couldn't do anything back for him, he couldn't even interact back with him. Everything, uh, now and had to feed him, he had to give him everything, take care of him. He couldn't offer him anything back except for his presence. And it began to hit him for the first time. God was speaking through Adam and saying, this is what my love is like for you. All of your life you've been thinking, I will love you because you achieve this or do this or accomplish this. And yet my love can only be experienced as you have nothing to offer me in utter vulnerability. And he said the love of God became real for me. And Henry Nowen spent the rest of his life as a part of that community. That's a radical story. The point is, you don't all have to go live with handicapped people. So you're off the hook there. But it's a great picture of someone who chose a different direction, downward mobility, to move towards and to make his home and friendship with someone who was utterly different from him, who could offer him nothing. And yet what he shared is that it was in that experience that he found peace that the love of God became more real and more satisfying for his soul. Now, just imagine for a minute. Imagine for us as a community, as a church, what if we began to live in that way? What if we began to move towards people who were unlike us? What if we began to entangle our lives with people like that, who had less than us, who had tremendous needs, what if we began to choose differently about where we live, where we chose to live? What kind of home we chose to live in? What if we chose differently about what kind of schools we were going to go to or send our kids to? What if we chose differently about how we were going to spend our time? Now, I don't know the specifics of those things for you, but what if as we thought through those choices and how we're going to live our life, what if the incarnation became the pattern, the lens for which we lived our life and how we invested our time? 
what if we began to move in downward mobility? What if all the churches in Dade County began to do that? What would that do to this place? I'll tell you one thing. The truth of Jesus and his power and his kingdom would get incredibly visible in this place. People would see the realness and the power of Jesus. Imagine. Imagine if the incarnation, imagine if the gospel began to become the lens through which we lived our life. We shaped everything in our life. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, as you well know, what is natural to us is to be repelled by need, to be repelled by brokenness, to move towards what is comfortable and safe and like us is so deep in our hearts. Sometimes we can use the freedom that we have in Christ to even kind of baptize those choices. But I pray, first and foremost, that the significance of the incarnation, the significance of the gospel, your self-giving love for us would be so real to us that it would thrill our hearts in such a way that it begins to affect the way that we live our lives, the direction that we move, everything that we choose to do in our life so that you would be glorified, so that your kingdom would come in all of its fullness. Would you work powerfully in us so that your invisible kingdom would be made visible? In Christ's name we pray.